Welcome into The Harvest, a podcast dedicated to helping ordinary believers take the message and mission of Jesus out of the building and into the everyday places of life. On today's show, I'm joined by Dan White Jr. Dan is the co-founder of Axiom Church in Syracuse, New York, and serves as a church planning coach with V3 Movements. He's also the author of several books, including his latest work, Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World. I really enjoyed this conversation. We covered Dan's own journey from pastoring a megachurch to reorienting his whole understanding and practice of church so that he could be more rooted in the everyday place of his neighborhood. We also discuss how believers and the church have a unique contribution to make in our current culture and this moment in history. With society becoming more and more polarized, what are the practical lessons we can learn from Jesus about overcoming fear with love? I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode, so give a listen and then head over to our Facebook page and let us know what you think. You can join the conversation in the comments under the post for this episode. Well, I'm joined today by Dan White. He is an author, a church planter, and someone I came into contact with through a friend, a mutual friend, Al Engler, who we've had here on the podcast. And recently, Dan wrote a book called Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World. We're going to talk about that today, as well as some other topics related to discipleship and being the church in modern times. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Oh, it's so good to be with you. Thank you, Andrew. Well, like I said, about a year ago, your name came up in a conversation I had with Al Engler. And Al mentioned that you were one person that I should be following on Twitter. And I'm not super active on Twitter, but I began to follow you and have really enjoyed learning from you from a distance. And then several months ago, your book came out and had a chance to read that and really feel like it's it's a timely book uh, for our times, probably worldwide, but certainly here in the States. So mm. I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you about that. But before we dive in Thank you. too deep, let's... Um, Let's get a little bit more background about just your own personal journey of faith and what's brought you to the place where, where you are today. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Um, well, uh, I've been uh, in full-time vocational ministry for um, 20 years, um, married 20 years as well. Um, my, my vocational ministry really has a story of two parts. Are two halves. Um, the first half, I was uh, um, pastoring and preaching um, at a booming uh, megachurch, um, and uh, and um, doing that well, uh, I think. Um, but about a year, about nine years into that, um, I started to have a bit of a crisis. Um, not a crisis of faith, but maybe a crisis of um, living into my faith. Um, I realized I wasn't, um, I actually had a summer off, like a, a mini sabbatical, and I did a lot of reflection and contemplation and uh, started to have some space to listen to the Spirit um, rather than just, you know, always having so much output. Um, and I started to realize that I wasn't living into some of the core things that um, had drew me into 
vocational ministry, uh, like community, shared life in community, uh, a mission in my neighborhood, um, and specifically uh, the way of Christ uh, through discipleship. And I, I was really I realizing that I was um, doing more performance and more uh, communication of ideas rather than living them myself. And so that kind of that brought a crisis. And um, and uh, long story short, I ended up leaving that mega church um, and entering into the wilderness of um, trying to figure out. Uh, what it meant for me to follow Jesus and to be faithful to the church. And, and, um, I, I had a year of pain and, uh, um, kenosis, <laughs> humbling, self-emptying and dealing with my own demons and my own self-righteousness. And, uh, eventually started to re-explore what it meant to be, um, the people of God in a particular place with a particular people. And, uh, that led me to church planting, um, starting a new faith community here in Syracuse. So for the last 10 years, um, I've been um, helping, I've co-planted a, a church here, uh, organizing around um, some minimalistic um, ideas around being the church, uh, life-forming discipleship, boundary-crossing mission, locally-rooted presence, and tight-knit community. And so we really try to stay faithful to those four things and um, live into them. And uh, that that's just been my primary local work. And then really about a year ago, um, I transitioned out of leadership of uh, our church here into um, full-time coaching and care and consulting for others trying to uh, start churches and be the church in this way. So that's that's been my my journey uh as succinct as i can make it um a lot of that <laughs> a lot of the reflection of that shows up in my first book subterranean um why the future of the church is rootedness and that's that's a bit of my early story uh i call it like my inner temper tantrum of realizing um i wasn't really living a rooted life i was living for relevance uh within the christian uh subculture um, and then churches movements in the second book, that's more about, that's really a, uh, kind of an instruction manual. If, if, if I, if I can say that or a guide about, it's really the reconstruction of how I, um, and another friend of mine, J.R. Woodward, um, how we, um, practice being the church. So I've tried to chronicle that journey, uh, in writing. That's just been my best, best outlet as an artist. So. Yeah, that that's great. I have a, a few things I'd like to to ask you about in those early years. So you had the the year in the wilderness. Um, mm. What was what was the dynamic with you and your wife, and mm. how did that journey look? Because it would have been, it sounds like, fairly um, well. I guess about ten years into your marriage, yeah. um, if my math is working right yep. today. Um, what was that journey like together? And then a second question is those four, those four themes that you build around. Did those evolve, or did that come out of the year in the wilderness? Mm. Andrew, those are, that, those are great questions. Um, well, the, my my year of obscurity it was more like eighteen months. Was hell. <laughs> uh, it was it was it was horrid. Uh, I was. Um, personally, I was dealing with a lot of uh, sense of 
ego and failure and um because coming out coming out of uh such a place of seeming success into the wilderness i realized i i didn't know how to do this um and i and mm. i was also um entertaining the thought that if i attempted to do it it pro- it may not be successful and i may not be successful and six i i so i was dealing with these uh the 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 inner the inner life i had built of um longing for success and longing to be seen as successful and even wanting to be in a successful church all that was being gutted out of me my wife and i were living in a uh a basement um because i didn't really have any income um i was i was laying tile uh in new houses on the side but it wasn't enough to to rent a place so we were living in a basement um and i mean i was an emotional train wreck and uh my wife was exceptionally attentive and compassionate but she was also afraid um that uh because we had built our identity on this ladder uh of ministry that had collapsed and now we she didn't know either what the future looked like so for her there was just so many unanswered questions she's looking at her husband and seeing him um uh deal with uh failure and and i'm no longer appearing all that strong um so we we fought a lot (laughs) we fought a lot uh not because we were actually in disagreement but just because uh, there was so much anxiety and stress. Um, but we fought a lot, and it. Right. But it was in that place that she, as well, was dealing with uh, the self-emptying work of who she was and who, where her identity had been um, situated. Um, you know, both of us would have set up to that point that our identity was in Christ, but that was honestly that, that was just a lot of covering um, and self-talk that wasn't really. Um, I don't think it was was true, and so we we needed to be stripped of um, of quite a bit of our uh, of who we thought we were in order to get to what God wanted to get us to, and so we fought a lot. And then there was this moment um, halfway through, probably around eight or nine months in, actually, where because of the um, the humiliation of where we felt found ourselves and our ongoing conversation, we actually started to see some daylight and um, clarity and realized that uh, our, I guess our attachments were changing. So we no longer were so attached to our past and to what our past determined was success or even to what our peers, would, what our peers were going to think of us to a place of, um, um, acceptance to whatever the future was. So we, we just, we found some daylight. We started to find some hope. Um, the anxiety started to, to disseminate and, uh, we actually started to catch a fresh vision for, um, what reformation would look like for us. Um, the, I don't know if that helps a bit with, you know, that stage. No, it really does. No, it really does, and I I think that for many, for many of us who are 
are familiar, we we spent time in mm. the more traditional model of church in America to begin to move towards more rootedness, as you described it, or we talk about moving towards being in the harvest, learning how to to take the, the message and mission of Jesus out of the building and into the everyday places of life. It's hard to just go from, from one mm. framework to the other. Yes. It, it seems to me that there's almost in, in, inevitably yes. this period of, I don't know, resorting and yeah. um, you know, Phyllis Tickle, if you're up. familiar with her work, the late Phyllis Tickle, she calls it a rummage sale. And, you know, that that transition hmm. um, that, you know, when you have a, a garage uh, that's intended to park cars in. Um, but, you know, over right. time, one day you're about to park your car in the garage and it's just full of clutter and you don't know how did it get that way. <laughs> like, but it, it just picks up clutter over time to the point where it's not existing for the purpose it was created for. And so you have a rummage sale. You just have to rip and tear and pull out and you start finding stuff that shouldn't be in there. You find mold that started to, to acquire. And I think you've got to go through that period of time. And it's, it's really a period of pain um, because a big part of yourself is being pulled apart. Um, and so uh, I don't know too many people who move through the, do deconstructive work around what it means to be the church that don't that can skip that that part of God doing the surgery on their soul. That's that's painful. And so, um, in order to birth something new, a resurrection, you've got to go through some death. So, well, I really appreciate you sharing that, and that's that's been my experience and my observation as well. That that during that transition, that there's yes um, a lot of confusion. And there can be a lot of pain yes. and a lot of, like you mentioned, fear, uh, because yeah. you're you're moving from a known into right, uh, right, a yet a yet to be known and unknown. So, um, so let's uh, talk a little bit more about coming out of that. You clearly had these these four themes that help you yes. move towards rootedness in a place. Did those things just evolve, or did did you come out of that that time of transition with some clarity on those? Yeah, well, they 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 came to me early before I actually entered into the to the wilderness. Um, that 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 three months off in the summer, when I was at my megachurch, I I perp I actually had this practice where I uh, was reading through the New Testament letters, and I put at the top of my journal, um, "What is the church?" And I was just trying to narratively walk through the New Testament afresh without having to preach a sermon or put a Bible study together and just ask that simple question. And as I walk through Paul's letters, uh, though I, that's where I discovered that I was a bit of a sham <laughs> um, because of what the simplicity of what the church was, I had moved so far away from. Um, and I'm not a biblicist, you know, I'm not, I'm not primordial and think, you know, we got to get back to the, to the, to the, you know, original DNA. And if we don't, you know, if we do, we unlock some secret sauce. Um, but I, I do believe that uh, there is um, a, a beauty and a, a potency uh, when we embrace minimalism. Um, and I think that's given to us by Jesus, then given to us through Paul. And so when I was journaling that, those those four themes came 
came to me. It was discipleship, community, mission, and loving neighbor place. And so as when I got out of the tail end of the, the, the desert, those things just started to, to, to come even f- clearer to me. It was almost like there was a seed planted uh, two years earlier, and then um, in in the wilderness they were watered. Um, I don't actually know if I could have received fully what God wanted to do if I didn't. I had so much clutter um, in my life uh, when it came to who I thought I was and how ministry was attached to my own success and um, even my even my addiction to ministry machinery, stages and lights and, and podcasts. I mean, not, I'm not down on your podcast, but like when I preached, you know, hundreds of people would, would, would buy our sermon CDs. And so that vicarious, that, that connected to my soul, all those, all that ministry machinery. And so I don't think I could have received what the minimalism of the beauty of the church without it being attached again to, to that identity. And so near the end of that season in the wilderness, those things came back to me and um, I started to explore them. And um, then I started to, to move beyond just the idealism of them into some realism of practice. And my wife and I were like, how are we, how are we going to practice these rather than use them as some, you know, idealistic frustration we have with the church? Uh, we, we wanted to, figure out how to reorient our life around them. So that's what happened at the tail end. Can you take just a few minutes um, to help our listeners understand what it does look like this, this last 10 Mm. years and the journey that you've been on there in Syracuse, especially in your, your local community, because I I know just a little bit about um, what you guys are doing. And I know that it looks much different (sighs) than what many people would think of when they think of church um, in America. So I've heard you mention the idea Mm. of coming together with a group of believers and agreeing upon a rhythm and rule. And maybe you could just uh, share with us about how you guys go about your weekly um, rhythm of life together. Certainly. Um, Well, it's, you know, it's morphed over the 10 years, obviously, um, there's some flexibility to it, but at the very, um, you know, the very essentials of a, of a rule and rhythm is a rule is, is really kind of, uh, I guess you could, the connotation for rule can, can feel like a yoke, but for, for, for me and the people that I planted with, we planted with, uh, 10 people, uh, 10 years ago. Um, a rule is this, um, this banner of, a way of life that we want to live under. So it, it has authority over us. Um, most people live under a rule. They just don't want to name it. <laughs> and they want to think that they, um, they are living uh, um, untethered, but hmm. we're all submitting to some, um, some system, some way of life, some, some organizing principle. And so we discerned our rule of life would be these four things. And then we had to discern how to live into the rhythm of them. Um, so it's really quite simple is uh, this is what we want to live into and this is how we're going to live into it. And so uh, we, our rhythm uh, was first we're going to gather for uh, discipleship. Um, that's the life forming discipleship piece. And so uh, weekly um, we're going to uh, share a meal and 
reflect on uh, how to be a follower of Christ in our place on mission under the Lordship of Christ. And uh, that discipleship has three parts. It has a meta, reflective, and experiential, which is mind, uh, soul, and body. And so we would reflect on the theology of discipleship and what it means to follow Christ. You know, that we'd also reflect on where this brought conflict in our souls. Um, and then we would reflect on our body, like how do we actually live into this this week um, physically, um, rather than it just being a Bible study of, um, you know, contemplating uh, verses. We wanted to actually live into it. So we would live in, we lived into that rhythm. Um, and that was, that was the, the, um, centripetal force really of everything was that that core of discipleship rhythm that we we sought we also crafted a covenant um together of how to uh live into community um so how to love one another well how uh how to speak of one another how to um uh, protect one another how to um deal with conflict uh uh how to um how just how to how to live a rooted life together and so we 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 customized and created a covenant together that covenant has changed over time the more we've learned the more we've grown some stuff has come out some new stuff has gone in um, we've expanded on stuff because we you know we've learned our lessons um, but covenant really is you know can have a cultic connotation i'm sure but covenant is just promise making it's just like how are we going to live how are we going to make promises to one another for how we're going to live um in my previous church experience everything was transactional nothing was uh covenantal everything was if i uh bring if i do this output if i do this performance and you like it will you stay so if i preach a great sermon and you love my sermon will you stay at this church um, and will you hmm. tell your friends about it? Um, if you don't like my sermon, you'll probably move on. If you like the worship, you'll probably move on. You, you won't, you know, you'll stay, you'll stick around. Everything was transactional, very consumptive. Um, I didn't know that, but hmm. that was really the glue of our relationship was this transactional dynamic. When I went planted, I really wanted a covenantal um, glue. Um, and so... Um, you know, weekly we gather for discipleship. We had a shared table, which is we would collide also for uh, a regular meal together, um, which is just this hodgepodge of us all bringing dishes together and and going around the table and, have, and sharing highs and lows. I mean, it's just a beautiful mess. It's nothing sexy, but it, it was this collision point that we had. No matter how crazy our weeks were, we would come together. And then we also had a rhythm of... Uh, mission in our neighborhood and so um, we were constantly discerning partnership with people who are already doing good things in our neighborhood as well as the cracks and crevices of like what are what is being missed in our neighborhood and so um, every other Saturday we intended to um, be present in our neighborhood we also intended to be present um, individually in our neighborhood discerning who um, um, God had put in our life um, I have a really fun neighborhood tool um, that we used 10 years ago and still use today. Um, the four P's of um, porch, um, pathways, pivots, and, and, and um, parish. And so that helped us discern how to be faithfully present in the very neighborhood that we were all in. So that, you know, it sounds, 
it doesn't sound that organized now that I'm communicating it, but it did give scaffolding to our life. And over time, um, God added people um, into the into the mix, and um, we had to discern um, multiplication. Like, do we are we gonna you know as God is as people are being drawn into our way of life together, do we just keep adding higher uh, more, or do we help um, equip and release and multiply? And so. Um, that's where you get into different levels of complexity with this type of church, because um, if if people are drawn to your way of life, uh, your covenant, your your discipleship, your shared table, your presence in the neighborhood, um, it naturally leads to more numbers. Um, and then the more numbers you get, the more that your way of life gets diluted. Um, and so you have to discern how to keep the, the that 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 ethic guarded. Um, and so, you know, that's why I said it's changed over time because the more that we've multiplied, we have to, we have to think through the complexity of that. So, well, I think, um, some of the things that stood out to me as you were sharing that one is just intentionality that you guys had. I, I don't think we need a lot of rules, but we do need, um, a clear intention and then, um, clear, clear practices or efforts that help us begin to move towards that that intention. And then the other thing that really stands out to me is depth of commitment, both a depth of commitment to one another, that there are there are deep relationships being formed between members of the church, and then a depth of commitment to a place, a neighborhood uh, specifically. Yeah. And that's something that that's I think true, is... And is... In, in to, to be forthright with that, it it's the hardest piece. <laughs> it is the most countercultural part of being the church in a, in hmm. the consumerist West that we live in is commitment. Um, <laughs> because most of our, our week is low commitment. Um, may, maybe our, our marriage and our family, but even then that's, challenged right so commitment with people in a place is the hardest thing right about this so i never you know i i never try to sell this way of being a church as kind of the fast track to growth or 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 like you know once you tap into this you're just going to unlock unilateral uh fruitfulness um it, it's it's difficult to find a core of people who are moved by the spirit who say, I want to commit hell or high water <laughs> to a way of life. Um, even when we offend each other, even when it's uncomfortable, even when um, we disagree, I, I want to stay here and, and, and allow God's spirit to, to break in. Um, that's, it's hard to find. Well, I, I know that um, you also do quite a bit of work with uh, V3 movement, which is, is part of coaching folks who do want to make this transition and to live out their faith in community in these, in these new ways. And I, I don't even think they're new, but they're certainly uh, not the norm for, for what we've thought of as church in the U S. So I, I think that's the other thing that I hope folks will, uh, will check out. I'll, I'll put a link to uh, the website for V3 movement because if people are listening to this and they are intrigued and they want to, to learn more about how they could perhaps be the church in their neighborhood 
with a, a band of, of fellow believers who have that shared vision, then it'd be great for them to, to have access to some, some ongoing help. Yeah. You know, one of the misnomers, uh, Andrew, is that um, pursuing being the church this way is just anarchy or uh, chaos or just, a, you know, just a complete reaction against organization. Um, you know, and that's why there's there's that kind of uh, feeling people have about kind of the missional, incarnational, movemental approach to being the church. They just think it's a bunch of re- rebellious people who just don't like going to church. And uh, I find the opposite, honestly. Um, and that's why we started the V3 movement was because there's such a clamoring of people who love Jesus and love uh, the body of Christ um, that they were that we're longing for new ways of practice um organized practice how do we actually come together and gather um without all the excess of what we gathered around before and so v3 was is really just coming out of how do we how do we train develop and um you know support one another so that um it's not just anarchy and it's not um you know, it's not just re- re- orienting around our antagonism. Um, and I'm certainly right. within the home church movement and organic church movement or whatever people want to call it. There are people that are um, pissed off with the church, of course. Um, but I, I, that's not the fuel that I think um, I'm positive. Actually, that's not what God's doing right now in the West. Um, yeah. I, th- I think God is out of the, out of the, the collapse of, um, Christendom, um, which America has um, really kind of tapped into that, to the strength of Christendom, um, out of the collapse of that um, is coming, out of the ashes of that are coming people who really want to find an old but new way of being the church. And so I think the more that we can um, train and practice and share our intelligences um the, the more stabilized and rooted, you know, this form of church will be. That's been my experience as well. I, and certainly it's true for, for myself and my own journey is that there's a desire to, to be all that the church is meant to be and to not be, um, to not be limited or distracted by, by forms and practices that have grown up over the centuries that, that may even inadvertently work against uh, the identity that the church is supposed to have and the way that the church is supposed to live. So I, I don't see it as a, a move away from something that I'm, I'm disgusted with. It's much more, I want to move towards the, the true church that we see in scripture and how do we live that out? Um, But it is true that, that it's it's fairly disorganized in a sense that you, you, I, I'm constantly bumping into other people who have this this shared uh, notion and they've been kind of moving in this direction. But I think what V3 is trying to do is bring together those like-minded, like-hearted people. And, um, and for those who are maybe newer on the journey, give them some, some help and some mentors from folks who have been on the, the path for a little bit longer. 
<laughs> well, this is actually, I actually wanted to transition here to, to kind of telescope out a little bit, and I'm going to put you on the spot. So hopefully uh, this won't be um, a, a difficult question. But, you know, I, I really wanted to start with your personal journey and history. But if we could telescope out, could you give us <laughs> your view on how society and the church arrive to where we are at this moment? It's, it's a huge question, so I uh, don't feel like you have to uh, answer everything. But, you know, why are we, why are we as a society more broadly, mm. but the church specifically, why do we find ourselves in this place where the church seems to be less and less relevant to the overall culture and society and, mm. and conversations that are happening? And that the church and society finds itself so polarized. What what are some of the forces that you think have contributed? Yeah, um, so you asked two questions there. I think they're I think they're related, um, but different as well. Um, I I think I mentioned earlier, but I think the reason the church is in this, um, I mean, it, it is fast losing relevance. Also. Um, in some sense, I think is crumbling. Uh, it's, I think it's because of Constantinianism. So that's a big word, but Constantine in the late third century um, took the movement of Christianity um, that was oriented uh, in homes around discipleship and uh, the table of Christ and it was a marginalized movement at that time, but it was certainly growing uh, virally. But he took that minimalistic movement and brought it into privilege and brought it into entitlement and status and um, gave specifically pastors uh, uh, authority within the state. Um, and that shift, uh, I think... Um, um, did serious damage, earthquake damage, on the DNA of the church. It went from being uh, the the a, a movement on the fringes, uh, following Jesus, hmm. um, without without the without the uh, the the without the the extras of uh, of that society offers it, and just orienting around. Um, uh, those four things we talked about earlier, to now having uh, a real place of authority, and so the the West and and I think the American Church, in some sense, has been uh, working right. and riffing off of that privilege and status in society. This is where you get that we're a Christian nation, and you know, and we can debate about that all day long, whether it is or it isn't. But the the entitlement that that the Christian church thinks it has within the civilization of America is really Constantinian. It is, we think that we're supposed to have a preferred place at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are supposed to go to church. Um, and, you know, every, we, we have all kinds of signs of this. See, like we have tax benefits. Uh, we have, you know, we have buildings. Uh, we have million dollar budgets. We have an entire music industry. We have, um, you know, we just we have in what I call an industrial complex, and um, we're, we because we have that industrial complex, um, 
I think we're finding right now there's an ex- existential crisis happening within the West that the the that the industrial complex has um, has gutted the soul and meaning of the church. I don't know if that's been the intention the whole time. I don't, you know, I don't like to get into the motives behind that. I just think that's the end result is that we're at a place now where we have the, we have the signs of the church, but we don't have, you know, we have the, rather we have the structure of church, but we don't have the soul of church. And so that's why, that's why the church is hemorrhaging young people and, and losing people who say they love Jesus, but not the church. Right. You've heard that phrase. Um, And it's just because we have, we, we have attached more to uh, our entitlement and our privilege of being the church rather than a way of right. life. And so, um, so there's, 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 there's a crisis right now we're facing and it's for me, the crisis is not, okay, let's pitch the church because it's crumbling and it's uh, it's an industrial complex and it's corrupt. For me, it's like, okay, let's rethink about, let's have a rummage sale. <laughs> Let's actually find out what actually this thing was created for. And so um, that's, you know, that's imaginative language to talk about where we're at. But um, right. the, the church is, the church is always, and the church has always been, it's been going through this for the last 2000 years, the, the, that it, it's, it's out on the margins and then it is moved to the center and then it, 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 it takes that privilege for granted and, and builds a system and then it has to, it has to it has to collapse at some point because it, it it's like the Tower of Babel. It, we, it's just you know, and and then we re, we have to re, we need renewal, we need revival, uh, we need reformation, and I I think that's where we're at right now. So mm-hmm. that is yeah, connected. I, I, Go ahead. I think so too. Yeah, if I could oh, yes. just add to that, just for for something that you said there, that I do think that the the moment that we find ourselves in is is a unique one. And I also think that it's, um, there's so much on the line right now in a lot of ways and in ways that go far beyond the church. Um, I mean, just, just the way that the world around us is changing so radically that what worked 200, 300 years ago, um, is, is going to be different than what we need to, what, what it means to, to live faithfully as believers today in 2019. We have to own this moment in history and, and we can learn from the past, um, but we can't necessarily just uh, try to replicate what, uh, how the church has lived out its devotion in the past. So I don't want to be, I don't even want to come across as overly critical of, um, how the church operated 400 years ago, but simply to say we need to be very much in tune with the, the spirit of God, the scriptures, but also the, the, the reality of our life in this time and place, uh, in our culture. So, uh, I think if we're, if we're just kind of, uh, robotically moving forward based on traditions and, and we're not really being rooted in the spirit, the scriptures, and the reality of, of what's going on in the world around us, it's going to be really hard to live faithfully as the church. And but, I, I think, Andrew, th- what that, if I can speak there, is that's what's, that's where, that's, that's the point of um, tension is that it's been hard for the church to be tuned into reality yeah. because we've, we've almost created our own alternative reality. Um, and I, 
you know, so I've said, I was saying before we actually got on, we started recording that most of my work here in the U.S. is trying to convince people right. that the church is in trouble because they we've created an alternative reality where it looks like the church is thriving, um, and because we 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 really do live, you know, the the, the cliche we live in a bubble, um, and you know, in my own city in Syracuse here, um, four point five percent. Barna did this research, uh, research did this research, 4.5% hmm. of the people in my city attend church on a regular basis. Um, th- that means almost 90 plus percent don't even think on Sunday morning about the church being anything they're interested in. But when hmm. I talked about, when I talk about, about this with Syracuse pastors, they don't believe it because their entire schedule all week long right. is church programs with church people. Um, they, they're not in tune to hmm. the 90%. Um, so it's hard for them to actually believe that because they've created an alternative reality. And that, that's why I call the industrial complex. It's just, and there's, so there's, I, the, you know, now that stat is different in different parts of the country and in different places. So, you know, I speak in the South, you know, 30% of people attend church on a regular basis um, in many parts of the South. So it's even then it seems even more preposterous to say the church is in trouble. But I think for those of us, well, for me specifically, it has to start personal. I don't think it has to start with um, the church is in trouble. I think it has to, I think that uh, it has to start with me. Am I living into community um, am I living into discipleship? Am I living into boundary uh, crossing mission in my neighborhood? And I, I honestly couldn't say I was uh, authentically, um, even though I was propping up all of the systems of the church. And behind closed doors, the pastors that I meet with, Andrew, uh, and it's been a, it's been hundreds over the last five plus years. They they aren't. Uh, very few of them know their neighbors. Uh, hmm. Very few of them can say they have actually been discipled. This I'm talking about pastors. <laughs> um, so the gatekeepers right. themselves I, are not authentically li- living into the DNA of the church. Um, so I eventually think that there's a there's there's right. that tension is eventually going to create. Uh, uh, an explosion. <laughs> I think we're feeling the, the early explosion right now, but I don't need to be long-winded on that, but I just, that's just, uh, yeah. No, no, no. Well, I think it, I think it connects to the, the second question that was, that we were asking there, which is polarization. And this goes beyond the church. I, I actually think that you could say what, what you're describing there with, with pastors and it's probably true for, for most believers of, of being disconnected or, um, not not integrated in their neighborhoods or in, even in their um, their their local places of of moving day in week week in week out. It it's really broader than the church that there's a, a fragmentation of our society as a whole, where you know the the neighbor pulls into their driveway, the garage goes up, they pull their car in, the garage goes down, and there's no connection there. So. Why, why do you think you wrote this book specifically to 
I think, address the problem of polarization and, and a faithful response, what a faithful response on our part as believers would look like. But um, why, why do you think that we have so much polarization in the country right now? Well, <laughs> um, I, 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 man, that's a, it's always hard to know, you know, what the entry point is for that. But the, 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 the evangelical church as a whole has um, found a very comfortable relationship with the conservative um, agenda of the Republican Party. Um, and we that's where we get the religious right. And, uh, you know, you ask most people now, can evangelicals, if, if they believe in a religious right, they'd probably say no. But the, the evangelicalism found some synergy with that surge within our culture in reaction um people who are uh exhausted and um find that marriage and that relationship to be um disastrous don't have an imagination for anything else other than the opposite um uh response which is to have a deep embedded relationship with progressive uh, left and 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 then in what we have now is this power struggle we have a boxing match occurring within the church uh, but also within the wider culture be in the boxing matches is who can win and who can lose so if I can get more progressives holding power then we will win uh, and the conservatives will be silenced and their ideologies which are seen as oppressive will be uh, squashed. The conservative part of the power, if we can get more power and more people in place of um, authority, then we can silence the progressives who are bringing in moral compromise, right? This is, I'm speaking as if, you know, that's their, that's their concern and fear. And so um, that's the macro thing happening right now in the church. But for me, I wrote the book because in my own church during the, Romney and Obama campaign, um, I had two people come to me. Um, I had one, one Sunday come to me, a dear woman who said she had to leave our church because she was a conservative and she, this is what she said, I feel like I can't be myself here. I feel like I'm being judged. So I have to leave. And I communicated to her love and that she was welcome, that she had a voice at the table, but she said she had to leave. Two weeks later, a, a couple came to me and said, we have to leave this church because uh, we're progressive and we feel like there are conservatives here who hold oppressive beliefs. Um, we don't want to be complicit with that and we have to leave. And I had the same response. You're loved. You have a voice at the table. But they both departed. And uh, th that was symbolic of a, of a deeper rumbling happening in my church. And I also saw in the culture is that we can't. I started to ask the question, can we share table fellowship together? Is this the new, uh, is this the new dividing point? Conservatives can't be near conservatives and progressives can't be near progressives. And specifically, can Jesus followers who hold different opinions on policy and, uh, and, and contextual issues actually stay together in community? At that point, I didn't know. And I actually had a lot of doubt. Um, and so, my research and started to explore this back during the during that time. Now it's on steroids with the Trump Hillary election and where we're at now. But I really wanted to fun, understand 
polarization right. and and that led me into finding that the root of polarization is fear is a gripping uh snarling fear we have towards each other um and so mm. i don't know if that helps a little bit because there is the, you know the, the macro polarization happening but i think even in our own churches um there is this purest move happening where only conservatives can be with conservatives and only progressives can be with progressives. Actually, uh, P, the P Research report just put out two years ago that 72% of conservatives only have conservative friends and seven, no, it's the other way around. 72% of progressives only have progressive friends and 78% of conservatives only have conservative friends. There's a siloing, really intense siloing happening where we're just not even being near each other and around each other. Our only interaction or only visible interaction is happening on social media. So we're not locally in community with each other. So that's, I think that's actually a consequence of Constantinianism going back is that, that (laughs) the marriage the church had with power is now there's a, there's a, a pendulum swing but it still is power um and you know that's why that's that's why we're at where we're at yeah and it seems to me too that there's a connection between you know we are a a a consumerist economy and so yes um you know Mm -hmm. i i'm a runner and i like puma running shoes and therefore um that's that's my go-to do they still make Puma? They do. <laughs> they do, man. Oh. <laughs> and they're great. <laughs> um, cool. So you've got this, you've got consumerism, which is really built around yes. a, a close connection between brand and consumer. Yes. And there's, there's, mm. a, there's a really potent dynamic that's happening there. And, and there's mm. the identity that gets brought up, that gets sucked up into that. Um, yes. And then it seems to me that, that, with the advent of the internet and in particular the internet 2.0 with social media that that's just gone yes. you know multiplied by a thousand because now right. um you can really go through well two things happen it, it seems to me one is you can go through your life only interacting with things that you and people that you already agree with that you already have an affinity right. and that that yes. that support your identity um Right. And simultaneously, a second thing that's happening is that we're becoming less connected in face-to-face yes. interactions um, in yes. the real, the real everyday of life. And so those two dynamics where yeah. we're becoming more and more extreme versions of ourselves, um, right, because we're finding right. it easier. That's a good way to say that. And then yeah. we're we're spending less and less time in the real world with people who are much more than. The, the running shoes that they prefer or the yes. the political identity that they, they choose to, to vote behind. Yes. So yeah, I think that that's, that's really well said. Yeah. Well, you talk about table fellowship and I think one of the, the most helpful parts of your book was, I don't think we had to convince very many listeners that this is happening, that man, it's really hard <laughs> to, right, right. Uh, to even be on social media uh, without coming away feeling uh, depressed or discouraged or angry. So the, yeah. the polarization thing is there, but the way forward that that you describe, th- there are several. One is this idea of of table fellowship, and um, related to that is the idea of pursuing proximity 
And you talk about a, mm. uh, a curiosity path, compassion and a curiosity path. Mm-hmm. So could you mm-hmm. maybe say a little bit more about table fellowship and the uh, curiosity path? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the primary, the primary problem, uh, of polarization is actually the erosion of relationship, um, and in connection. Um, I have a whole section in the book around, um, the, sorry, I got an ambulance. Oh, uh, that's it. That's all right, brother. It's right usually on my end. Yeah. I, I'm right across the road from a fire station, so <laughs> yes, <laughs> our listeners are used so, to it. So, um, totally cool. Um, so, the the we think we're more connected than we ever been, but uh, but actually, mm. my research, my research, and my anecdotal kind of uh, opinion is that we're actually, and you said this earlier. There, there's just we're we're actually becoming extreme versions of ourselves and we're actually disconnecting more and more from people who think and feel and look and believe differently than us. And so we're orienting around ourselves more um, Mm -hmm. and and piecing together, assembling a world that's our preferred option. Um, And so we're living in, in echo chambers. So my anecdote, or my remedy, if I can say this, is actually to uh, to rebel and resist against that force um, and move into um, these practices, these interpersonal practices. I don't have any broad sweeping anecdote that's just like how to change culture overnight. Um, <laughs> right. For me, it has to start on the most... Uh, um, sacred seed and that is relationship and so um you know in the book i i have a, a cute title called making meals for frenemies hmm. um, which is really table fellowship which is how do you begin to prepare meals and eat with others that are unlike you um and uh that you <laughs> It's amazing how much fear is in that practice um, and how much anxiety that brings us to actually eat with people that we disagree with. Um, Hmm. But I found that in my own story, um, I wanted to kind of skip that stage and and get to the ideologicals. Like I want to argue ideology, but I actually don't want to befriend anybody that – um, you know, um, <laughs> right. In, right. So, um, then when you, when you start cultivating a, a table of eating with your enemies, um, which is what Jesus did, <laughs> believe it or oh, not. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's also, I mean, we could go on and on here, but I think that's, I think that's the lost, uh, uh, message of the gospel in the life of Christ is how much, uh, how he ate with enemies, uh, perceived enemies, both the prostitute and the Pharisee. Um, he mm-hmm. was cultivating this space of hospitality rather than warring hostility with everybody, and he was indiscriminate in how he did it. And mm-hmm. this this practice that the disciples were observing in Jesus was unbelievably politically scandalous and personally bothersome to them. And that's why he finally says in the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of the kingdom, you have heard it said to hate your enemies, love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I'm telling you to love your 
enemies and pray for those who hurt you. And in this way, you will be like your father in heaven, right? That's he's he in that statement. He is uh, he is naming what he's been doing the whole time. Um, they're hmm. observing what's happening. And now he's finally saying, this is what's going on here. Um, and I think that that message has been lost as a path of discipleship and as the, is really one of the core uh, messages of the good news, that Jesus dines with enemies. He loves his enemies. Um, and we are to go and do likewise. So if that's going to collide in our um, in how we perceive following the words, works, and ways of Jesus, then it has to collide at the table. Then once you get to the table um, and you start cultivating that practice, um, my wife and I, you know, intended to do that. And uh, what we found ourselves in was like, okay, when you're at the table, now what? (laughs) What happens now? I actually, you know, you find that you don't know how to listen well. Um, You don't, uh, you get offended easily. Um, You're triggered. um, You're disgusted. um, or you're passive. Um, and that's where I started to explore compassionate curiosity, um, which really is active listening, uh, honestly. <laughs> um, but right. it's really this path of being compassionate at the table and exercising curiosity um, as, as a route of dismantling antagonism um, that's just kind of sitting in the room or sitting between us unsaid. Um and as I've taken people through the compassionate curiosity, it is amazing how it's healing in their own marriages. Wow. Because uh, very few of us have learned how to be uh, um, curious and listening and present with all of our senses with somebody else. Um, and sometimes we find that the very enemy is our husband or wife. I mean, uh, many times in my marriage, my wife yeah. has been my enemy. Um, no, I would never say that cause I'm sophisticated enough not to say that, but that's what she's become. She's been polarized against me cause we disagree and we're at odds. Um, and so we have these layers of enemy hatred in our life, uh, that move from the cons- smallest circle all the way outward. And we have to learn how to become compassionate and curious about everybody. And so I like that term compassionate curiosity because it, compassion is made up of two words, co and passion. And co means both and passion means suffering. And so it doesn't matter who I'm sitting with, whether it's someone who's voted for Trump or voted for Hillary or is uh, – um, you know, I'll give you an example. My neighbor across the street is rabid about the legalization of marijuana, and I think it's a silly idea. But we, <laughs> when I sit down with him, uh, I can I can seek to find out where he's suffering in his life. Everybody has suffering. We're both suffering, and and. Our culture right now likes to kind of rank suffering or say that only this group of people suffering or that group of people suffering or Mm. my suffering is worse than your suffering. Um, And I think Jesus entered every place he was in and realized that it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. 
there's pain and suffering and hurt in your life, and that calls us to to be excavators, to be uh, to be diggers, to find out where that is, so that we can tend to it. And so, we we always think that the fight is about ideology and policy and politics, but everything is connected to the human pain we experience. And so, teaching people how disciples how to be these diagnosticians around pain and suffering is to me is, is the first step of healing. Um, I don't know if that helps at all, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And there's some, there's some principles in here that I, I know that um, you're, you're discussing, but uh, one, one statement you make in your book is that our points of difference can either be barriers or bridges. I said that. (laughs) And, and I think (laughs) you you did. And, uh, I think what makes the difference is whether or not yes. we're curious to find out, well, why is this person different? You know, there's, there's a story yes. in, in this other person, in this other person, person's life. But uh, another principle that you're, you're discussing and, and really this, this gets to another challenge that we face that I think has led to polarization is yeah. just the speed of life that the idea of sitting down, I mean, many of us struggle to sit down and right. have a meal with our families. Um, so the idea of making space to actually sit down and have a meal yes. with uh, an enemy yes. or a frenemy, as you describe them, is right. just, it's not even on the radar but uh, but but like you said, Jesus yes. Jesus modeled this. Something I heard you say on a uh, another podcast that I caught you on was that uh, the instances of Jesus sharing a meal with the Pharisees are about equal in number, perhaps even more than yeah. his instances of calling them out. Yeah. And yet, most of us, when we think of Jesus and the Pharisees, yeah. we think of this combative relationship where he's he's. Yeah speaking hard truth yeah. uh, to Very them. true. Um, and another thought that I actually just had is that if you look at, if you look at those interactions um, around those meals with the Pharisees, oftentimes um, yeah. they would ask him questions. So they would yes. actually open the door for him to share his yes. point of view. Um, but I think it's because he was... Yep. He was in that space yes. and there was time yeah. to actually have a conversation. It's, it's, so it's funny, Andrew, right? That these are these are parts of the life of Christ, but we've made really we've made light of them that Jesus is actually reclining and enjoying a meal with his enemies, um, perceived enemies at that time. But that's that's the ground, that's the foundation for him to even deliver our heart truth when it's time um and you know we like to kind of latch on to his uh you know you brood of vipers you whitewash tombs you know when he says those things but he had done the hard work of being in their space with them and having conversation he wasn't even debating often it was them asking him a question and him telling them a parable and a story, um, a subversive parable. And then they ask him another direct question <laughs> right. and he's a little bit ambiguous, but he's intriguing and he's enjoying, he's enjoying, he's enjoying the space with them. And um, I found that the, the more I spend time with people that are my perceived enemies, the more I actually enjoy who they are. Um, and, uh, and, Yes. Um, I don't have to compromise 
who I am. Um, and I, th I think that's a big part of the, the – that's the tipping point for people loving their enemies is that they perceive that to be with their enemies at the table, loving them, listening to them, sharing stories with them, being compassionate to them seems like compromise or complicity. Um, and that's, that's why most people don't mm. even take the first step because they don't want to give an inch because they're afraid they got to give a mile. And, uh, and, and, and that's how our culture has, con that's that right. those are the terms of polarization, which I actually think of the terms of, uh, the enemy Satan, that for a conservative to have table fellowship with a progressive is compromise. And for a progressive to have table fellowship with a conservative is complicity to injustice and in round and round we go. And so we never even, you know, our only hmm. interactions are just tossing verbal grenades over hmm. social media, but Jesus was in, and this is the, also, the other potent part of the gospel is that he did not just send the Ten Commandments 2.0. He sent a body, physically embodied. And this is the, this changes yes. everything. I have opinions about my enemies, but the moment I sit down with them for dinner multiple times, my opinions soften. The way I say things changes. Um, and I see they become mm. humanized rather than being seen as a monster. Um, and we're losing that ground, um, culturally, but I think that, uh, you know, I, I've already said this, Andrew, but I think that can, that's the, that is the, uh, the cause of the church to, uh, to flip the script and to disciple people yeah. to move into that domain because nobody else is going to, and it will potentially be the scandal of the church if that's what Christians right. <laughs> do, um, Oh my goodness, that's revival, buddy! Right? That's yeah, when that people say revival. You know, they look at the first and second Great Awakening as what a revival yeah. is. I'm like the third revival, if it's going to come, is is enemy love, um, because there's nothing like it. There's it is it's hmm. it's ass backwards to most people <laughs> to use that language, but to in culture it is yeah. to love oh, yeah. your enemies. Sounds it's from another planet and. Um, I think I think it's time um, coming out of Constantinianism for us to disciple each other <laughs> to follow that that path of good news. So, well, man, I wish we could keep going. Uh, we'll have to have you back on at some point in the future. But um, I, I I think some themes that I'm taking away just from our conversation today is that that we really need to step back and ask God to teach us anew how to be disciples, how to be the church what it looks like to, to live faithfully at this moment in time. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to require us to orient our lives radically different from what we see in culture and society around us. And, and I would say even radically different from what we have traditionally seen with the church itself. And I think your book does a great job of helping people uh, get some clarity around what the issues are, especially with the, the the topic of polarization, and how and how to begin moving towards people um, rather than attacking them or avoiding them, which is which is really what we we tend to do. So, yeah, Dan, thanks so much for coming on today, and uh, I'll put a link to the book also in the show notes so our listeners can can easily access it. Cool, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, your questions were really stellar, so thanks for. Uh, you know, engaging the work and look forward to connecting again. 
Yeah, we'll do it again soon. Thanks, brother. Bye-bye. Thanks for being part of our community. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. Or you can support it directly by visiting our website, intotheharvest.org, clicking on the donate link, and becoming a monthly giving partner. When you do this, you'll receive a thank you package with some great ITH gear. Thank you for supporting the show and helping our small team make a big difference for Jesus. It's listeners like you that make this ministry possible.